We saw the pictures and heard the stories of the Minneapolis Bridge disaster, but what really happened and who saw it firsthand? You're listening to a special report on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And with me is Christy Rollwagen, Deputy Director of Emergency Preparedness for the City of Minneapolis. Christy and I are talking about some of the stories that took place during this disaster, rescue, and relief in Minneapolis after the bridge collapse. Christy, welcome to Reach MD. Hello. So tell us how you were involved and how this whole disaster started for you. Well, on Wednesday, August 1st, about 6 o'clock, a main thoroughfare highway bridge went down in our river, in the Mississippi River, uh, in the middle of rush hour. When the first call came in, I anticipated a very grim outcome, knowing that the amount of debris that was going to be in the water and the number of vehicles that were on the bridge in the middle of rush hour, I could only imagine how bad it was going to be. And so when I came in uh, that evening to work at our emergency operations center, I was anticipating a large volume of fatalities um, and injuries. And once we were finished with the incident and pulled the last body out of the water, On August 20th, there were only 13 fatalities, which was just unbelievable to me. I thought it was going to be a lot worse. We ended up transporting um, about 90 folks that night as well. I believe the last victim left the hospital on Wednesday, August 22nd. And so the people that were injured were seriously injured in the hospital for a number of weeks. And like I said, only 13 fatalities was amazing to me that we lost only 13 that night. During the rescue effort, can you tell us some of the stories that took place that made sure that as many people survived as possible? I couldn't believe the number of lay responders, you know, public, who just got out of their cars. They were either on the bike path below the bridge or they were on the road before the bridge went down and and got out of their cars or got off their bikes and just started to help people. There were people who survived on the bridge who then went over to people who were injured and started to help them get off the bridge well ahead of our rescue crews getting there. I mean, our rescue crews were there in a short period of time, but the people who were already on the bridge who survived and were not injured were already helping others. And the unbelievable coordination and cooperation that they then worked into our incident command system with our responders was just remarkable. Just envision you're coming across the bridge and the bridge goes down, and we had cars that were stopped literally dead in their tracks, you know, 10 feet from falling into the river, and those people would then got out and started helping others. It was just an unbelievably chaotic sight to see uh, the first hour of that incident. So we saw a picture of a school bus that looked poised to fall off the bridge. Tell us what happened there. Well, there was a semi next to him, a gentleman who was driving a tasty bread semi, the kids had just been, you know, coming back from a swimming expedition, and there were, I believe, 60 kids on that bus, and they were trying to get the semi-driver's attention to honk his horn. And just as they were coming across the bridge, they were on the tail end of the bridge when it, the other end fell into the water. And remarkably, their school bus stopped, and it looked like the semi-driver had almost blocked them in so that whether by chance or on purpose, 
their school bus didn't go either over the side or slide back down into the water. There were people seriously injured on the school bus, um, some of the adults. And so a, a lay responder who actually got to meet the president when he came to town because of his heroic efforts, he just opened the back of the bus and started getting the kids out right away. And there was a, the semi-driver that was next to him actually uh, lost his life. Part of the bridge fell down on the cab of his truck, and then his truck caught on fire that night. And so there was a danger of a fire right next to this school bus. It was in a precarious spot on the bridge, and people just started getting the kids out, and they would bring them down off the bridge onto the bike path and then walk them up. Remarkably, the American Red Cross was right at the end of the path, of the bike path, our Twin Cities chapter of the Red Cross. So they would bring these 60 kids up to that parking lot, and then at that point they would put them with an adult and then try and reunite them with their parents. And how much distance was there from the bridge where this bus was down to this bike path, and how did they get people down there? Literally, people just started handing them down the side of the bridge. They were on a part of the bridge that fell that you could safely jump off of the bridge onto the bike path. It came down, you know, through the columns of the bridge. It came down and landed on the bike path. How did you get the fire equipment onto the bridge or near the bridge to get that fire out in the cab of the truck? Well, there were some access roads down to the bike path that our fire department utilized and um, ended up setting up what we call a master stream device to put out that fire. I heard that there were some places where the ambulances weren't able to go and you had to use alternative vehicles to rescue some people. Tell us about that. Well, I've seen pictures of people actually carrying victims out on cardboard boxes. And I mean, it was amazing what people did that night to improvise. Our ambulances had access issues as well as our fire trucks. And so the firefighters would go down on the bridge that fell in the center span that fell into the water. And, you know, they would try and stabilize the patient and then get them on a backboard and bring them up to the ambulance. So there were, you know, lay responders that were helping the firefighters transport these people on their backboards or on their gurneys up to the top so that the EMS folks could then transport them. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a special report on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host on the Clinician's Roundtable, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Christy Rollwagen, Deputy Director of Emergency Preparedness for the City of Minneapolis. So what other heroic stories are there of this rescue and recovery effort? Well, I think that the divers that came in to assist us from the FBI and the Navy and the Sheriff's Office, I really think that they are the true heroes here as well as all of the responders that came the first couple of hours that night. They had an unbelievable task in front of them. You know, we had an entire bridge that was in the river with all the rebar, all the concrete. Um, all of the vehicles that were on the bridge were either still on the bridge or in the water. And the visibility in the water was zero. They couldn't see anything. Um, so the divers would go in knowing that there were all these hazards under the wa- surface of the water. And, you know, they would go in anyways, um, even though they couldn't see anything. It took about a week, but by the time our FBI divers, our Navy divers, and our county sheriff divers were under the water, they had to map out what they were seeing under the water by feeling it by hand. And then they would come up and report what they saw, and they would use some pretty uh, fancy sonar equipment and that type of equipment that they had to help create what they thought they had under the water. You know, we would stand up on shore. You couldn't tell what was below the surface of the water. You knew there was a lot of debris down there, but you didn't know what shape it was in. He didn't know where the hazards were. 
So they would go down there and literally feel, you know, hand after hand after hand, what it looked like under the water, and they were able to create a pretty vivid picture um, and then create a strategy as to how they were going to cut up the debris under the water and access the last vehicles that they needed to get to to get the victims out. What kind of equipment do they use to cut up that debris, and how dangerous is it when that debris gets loose in that current? Right, and that was a concern when it started raining that we were going to start moving debris because of the change in the current. And every time they would pull a vehicle out or every time they would cut a piece of the bridge debris away, they would actually pull the divers out of the water, let it settle because they knew that there was going to be a change of current flow in that portion of the river. And then they would let it try and clear a little bit before they'd send the divers back down because it wasn't safe for them to be down there. The equipment they were bringing in was unbelievable. I've learned more about construction equipment and salvage equipment than I ever thought I would know in my lifetime. They would bring in these huge cranes to do what they call a cherry pick of the cars off of the bridge top, and they bring these cranes in on barges. So it took almost a full week to get all the equipment up the river from our construction company that was assigned to do the bridge demolition. They would bring all that equipment in, and there was an amazing piece of equipment that they brought in that looked literally like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it could cut through all the bridge beams and um, start to deal with removing the concrete that was in the water. They had a 24-hour operation where they were using all of this heavy machinery, clearing a space, allowing the water to settle, and then they'd send the divers back in. So they dove round the clock while this was going on. And every time they made a change, they had to go back and remap it? They would go back in the water and reassess, yes. Take us through what life was like for you over this 20 days. You get this call at 6 o'clock or so on August 1st, and then what happens? Well, I came home... At 3.30 a.m. the first night and went back at 5 because of all the morning shows from the national news stations were coming to town. And then I think I came home. I was putting in pretty long days the first week. And I literally sent my husband and the kids to the lake and said, I'll see you in a week because I knew I was going to be working around the clock. It was pretty intense for the first two full weeks. And round-the-clock meetings that needed to happen, and every time we would recover a body out of the water, there was a whole series of of media events that happened with that, and there was a need to bring our our medical examiner on site, and so there was a process that involved constant attention, and I think that most, our, our emergency operations center was up for almost two full weeks, and then our ongoing efforts on the scene for recovery took place for the first 20 days and then our ongoing deconstruction of the bridge and demolition and debris removal and ongoing NTSB investigation is still going on. For you personally, how do you deal with this psychologically and physically when you're done with 20 days of this kind of disaster relief? I'm taking some time with my kids, and I am going to uh, try and kind of decompress a little bit here. 20 days on site is tiring, but it's also mentally and emotionally draining. And I found that as I've spent time with the same people over the 20 days, that you start to figure out what you need to talk about and and what you don't want to talk about. And you never get used to looking at the site. And that was one thing that really struck me. Every day I would come down to the bridge and you never got used to looking at it. And so you would seek out those people and And we would talk as victims were coming out of the water. They had suffered so much trauma. We actually did a lot of uh, critical incident stress debriefing on site 
and are doing a lot of follow-up with our people who were part of extrication and vehicle removal. It's something that it's going to stay with me for a while. I, I, you know, it's going to stay with me for a while. Medical personnel are used to the kinds of issues that come up when people are injured, but the magnitude of the Minneapolis Bridge collapse created stories of heroism and medical support. I want to thank our guest, Christy Rollwagen, Deputy Director of Emergency Preparedness for the City of Minneapolis, for helping us understand some of the stories surrounding this disaster recovery and rescue. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. You've been listening to a special report on the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.